From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Xeriscaping and watering our lawns less often conserves water. But to make significant change, experts say it's up to a very specific group here in Colorado and across the West. We've really got to give more optionality to ag producers and at the same time put water into a river system that's just desperately needing it. Is paying farmers and ranchers to use less water the answer? Or does it just create new concerns for our food supply? Then, a Colorado wonders question about wildflowers in our state. Turns out there may be more yet to find. There are many rugged parts of Colorado, so not every corner of Colorado has been explored, and there is potential that there are some undiscovered species of wildflowers or just different variations of wildflowers that have yet to be documented. If you were asked to draw a map of Colorado, you might draw a simple rectangle, four straight lines. But look closely at a detailed map, and you'll see kinks and crooks in the lines that mark the state's borders. In fact, nearly 700 of them, all thanks to 19th century surveying tools and techniques. Our southern neighbor wasn't thrilled about that, so in 1924, New Mexico went to the U.S. Supreme Court to try to get Colorado to straighten out the border. That would have put one town, two villages, and five post offices into New Mexico. But the Supreme Court ruled for Colorado. And that's why, if you look at a detailed map, south of Pagosa Springs, near the community of Cromo, you'll see a bend in the border. Just one of the more obvious examples of why Colorado is not a perfect rectangle. A Colorado Postcard from Colorado Public Radio. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. If we turned off every tap in every city in the Southwest, it still wouldn't solve the Colorado River crisis. That's because 80% of the water goes to agriculture, from the lettuce and melons in your produce section to the half and half you put in your coffee every morning. Those farmers have some of the preeminent rights to the river. So what if the government paid them to keep their water in the river instead? Let's join climate and environment reporter Michael Elizabeth Sackis and Parched, CPR's podcast about the Colorado River that shaped the West, the 40 million of us who rely on it, and the search for solutions. I'm riding shotgun in an off-roading vehicle. It looks like a souped-up golf cart made for steep dirt trails instead of putting greens. James Eklund is driving. He's a tall guy wearing a collared shirt and a fancy, clean, off-white cowboy hat. We're driving across grazing fields for cattle. It's fall, and the trees shimmer orange and yellow in the wind. Mountain views surround this ranch in western Colorado. James hops out to unlock a metal gate. And then suddenly, we're surrounded by cattle. These are uh, black Angus, mostly. (laughs) And we have a ditch that irrigates this property, and we raise hay grass with a little bit of alfalfa in it. When I look at the ground right now, it's pretty green. And that's because of the water that's 
flood irrigating? Yes, uh, we try and hit our dry spots as efficiently as we can, but it is flood irrigation. Over the last few episodes, we've been thinking about what cities can do to use less water. And that's important and empowering for those of us who live in those cities. But here's the reality. Despite the fact that the Southwest is now packed with tens of millions of people, cities aren't using most of the Colorado River. Farming and ranching sucks up around 80% of what flows through the river. People like James water fields to grow cattle feed in Colorado, or broccoli in Arizona, or lettuce in California. More than 5 million acres spread across the Southwest and into northern Mexico use up the majority of the Colorado River. If you draw a line down the middle of the country, pretty much like smack dab through the middle of Kansas and Nebraska, that's the 100th meridian. And everything to the west of that line has to be irrigated in order for it to grow. So that's why I'm here. Surrounded by Black Angus in Colburn, Colorado, to talk to James on his family's ranch. If there's any chance of us getting out of this water crisis, farmers and ranchers will need to be the biggest part of the solution. It's likely they'll need to use a lot less water. But getting farmers and ranchers to conserve isn't an easy thing. Western water law is designed to protect older ag operations from having to give up water. There are also use-it-or-lose-it laws that threaten to take water away from farmers and ranchers in the Southwest if they stop using water to grow food or raise livestock. We've really got to give more optionality to ag producers and at the same time put water into a river system that's just desperately needing it. James's family has been using the Colorado River to run this ranch for more than 130 years. And now, James wants the option to make a profit another way, which could help out the water crisis. He wants state and federal dollars to go to farming and ranching families like his, so they are paid to use less water. Doing that would leave more water in the river to benefit everyone in the Southwest. I am a big believer in the power and innovation of agricultural producers to get that job done. I'm not such a big fan of hoping for rain. But the Colorado River is the foundation southwestern agricultural communities are built on. So some farmers and ranchers see this idea as a threat to their livelihoods and identity, especially if water itself, instead of the food it can grow, becomes the more profitable commodity. Here, farmers can grow alfalfa in the desert year-round. That goes to dairy cows. And it means all of us get a reliable supply of milk to satisfy cheese pizza, nacho, and latte cravings around the country. 
The long growing cycle of desert farming is why people in cities from coast to coast have lettuce and other vegetables on the shelves of our grocery stores in the dead of winter. It doesn't matter if you're eating that salad in Colburn or Denver or New York City, that's a very big input to any restaurant, any grocery store. You can imagine going to your local grocery store and not being able to get iceberg or romaine or arugula, green leaves to eat. So the vast majority of Colorado River water goes to our plates. But now the Colorado River is in crisis, so the states and the federal government are looking to ag to cut back on water use. And that has James worried. If this water crisis gets bad enough and Lake Mead, the country's largest reservoir, continues to plummet, James is afraid families, like his, will be forced to give up their water. That those laws in place to supposedly protect him won't anymore if there's a chance city taps could go dry. That would threaten the health and safety of millions of people and farms could be forced to give up water to avoid that. Instead, James would rather volunteer now to stop using some of his water and get paid. That's actually on the table as a solution, because, at least for now, farmers control most Colorado River water, and that control is passed down through generations. So we're going to head to the head gate now? Yeah. We've left the field for an overgrown dirt trail. Branches hit me in the face and shoulder as we drive alongside an irrigation ditch. We stop where the ditch meets a stream, which is legally Colorado River water. A ditch like this in the 1880s would have had to be dug by hand, and people would have showed up with their team of horses or their, their shovels or you know whatever they could do to help dig this ditch. One of those people was James's great-great-grandfather. Ole Gunderson moved here from a small Norwegian town. After he was blinded from a mining explosion, he immigrated to the U.S. to start this ranch. Ole's young sons had to help him hunt to survive as the family built their homestead here in Colorado. My grandfather would carry the musket, and then he would get down on all fours, and his boys would lay that musket across his back and shoot the elk. So, I think it's a great story. This story about great-great-grandpa Oli helps explain why most Colorado river water goes to farming and ranching. As Europeans forced indigenous people off this land, they dug irrigation ditches to feed crops and grow food. In the eyes of the law, that secured only the protected right to keep using a certain amount of Colorado River water forever. These are the laws that shield some farmers and ranchers from having to give up water in the face of climate change. So if Ole comes into this valley where we're standing and puts his shovel in any of the creeks around here, 
then he has an 1888 water right. If somebody comes along, and people did, after him, even if they're upstream of him, they have to let all their water go past to satisfy Ole's right before they can take a drop. It seems a little strange, but that's how water rights work in the West. It's like a complicated system of calling dibs. Since Ole's water right is from 1888, the law says he's protected from newcomers who take from this same stream. Ole gets first dibs on this water. Then the guy with the second oldest water right gets second dibs, and so on. The newest guy, he often goes without water. And that water right is valuable, and it's often passed down to family, like James. You turn the water out of the ditch, it floods the field, and then you plug that hole that you created in your ditch and move down a, a little ways, and you pop another hole, and you, you flood another section of your field. And that's the way we've done it, and that's the way Ole did it. That's the way everybody's done it since, you know, 1888. But what if 130 years later, in the era of climate change, James started to use that water another way. What if instead he was paid to leave that water he has rights to in the river, to let it flow all the way down from Colorado to Lake Powell, the second largest reservoir in the country at the Arizona-Utah border? Together, Lake Powell and Lake Mead downstream work as a water bank for the entire Southwest. That water savings account protects tens of millions of us from dry years. So in order to avoid the contents of Lake Powell declining to a crisis level, we need to put water in that bucket. This is a manner and mechanism that can actually change the levels of that reservoir because you're talking about 80 to 90% of use in the basin being in agriculture, it really has to be an agriculture-led solution to the problem of declining reservoirs. James is standing where the ditch Ole dug meets the stream. Here, there's a tall metal contraption called a headgate. They're kind of hard to describe. A headgate looks like a guillotine. <laughs> it has a slotted structure that the gate sits in and it can literally be cranked open or cranked shut by a, turning a wheel on the top of the device. I mean guillotine's pretty close. Like, I, I think, Doesn't it look like a guillotine? It's a sheet of metal that opens and closes vertically. James would be willing to crank down the metal slab and stop the water from rushing down the ditch to irrigate his fields. But... It's really important for agriculture to be compensated for this kind of activity because when I ratchet down that headgate we're looking at, it means I'm not growing something. And that means I'm not making as much money as my business requires me to make or that I... Uh, normally count on making. So farmers could give up some of their water as long as they can still make an income. James is eager to set up a program like this. 
in part to address the water crisis, and because if the crisis gets too severe, farmers and ranchers could be forced to give up their water and might get nothing in return. The people I've talked to are quite nervous that if nothing is done, you can forget about distributed pain. All of the pain will be borne by agriculture. So it sounds like you are taking this on. You're trying to make some change. Can you tell us what you're doing? Partially born out of frustration, but I'd say more so born out of my kind of eternal optimism that we can control our own destiny in the Colorado River Basin. I'm I'm running around the state every chance I get, any person I can talk to that's in agriculture about this in the hope that a critical mass, a chorus of voices uh, can kind of rise up and implore the state to act. The states. For his plan to work, he needs states or the federal government to offer up money. Over the last several years, Colorado, New Mexico, Utah, and Wyoming have been considering it. All of them would need to agree on it to move forward together. James has been trying to help them along. He started a petition and set out to get farmers and ranchers to sign up and show the states that they want a program like this. There was no forum that the state was continuing for me to go make my case at a podium or at a conference. So I just came up with an instrument on my own. And that petition is hopefully being circulated around. I would count it a massive success if, even if not very many people sign it, that it spurs the state to act. That's the point. And I hope that's the case. One place that James went to drum up support is a farming and ranching mainstay in my home state, the Colorado State Fair. The hot September weather here in Pueblo, Colorado, clearly hasn't kept the crowds away. I'm dodging people left and right who are holding turkey legs and cotton candy. There are rides too scary for me to get on, like the Hammer, the Scrambler. There are rodeos and livestock auctions and horse riding competitions. This fair is older than Colorado itself. It started in the late 1800s to celebrate agriculture. I almost follow the enticing smell of funnel cake to its origins, but then I focus. I'm looking for James. And then finally, in this sea of cowboy hats, I find him. And he's wearing his crisp white Stetson. I'm showing you on my cowboy hat right here a Centennial Farms Colorado pin that you get when you when you have a, a ranch or a farm that's been around that long. With all the farmers and ranchers gathered here, James sees the Colorado State Fair as a perfect place to find people to sign his petition. I feel like a old-time preacher that would go from like town to town and try and spread the good word and the gospel. And for me, it is water. Hey, John. It's good to see you, my man. 
Michael Elizabeth. Hello, I'm Michael. I'm with Colorado Public Radio. Okay, good. John Singletary is a semi-retired rancher with a career history in state water issues. And he's just the kind of person James wants to talk to about paying ranchers to use less water. John and James have worked together in the past. This guy knows more about the Colorado River than John Wesley Powell. (laughs) We go on a walk around the state fair to find a shady spot to chat. Uh, They say that smell is the the closest tie to memory. And you you catch smells here that I I haven't smelled in any other place. (laughs) It makes me feel at home. Yeah. Kettle corn and yeah, it's like a uh, little cow manure. <laughs> yep. James explains his petition to John, and John likes the idea of paying farmers to use less water to protect the Colorado River and all those who rely on it. We got to help each other, and that's where that's where James is trying to bring us all together right now. We got to help each other. We got a problem. We got to have a strong, strong voice to make sure we're protected, but we also got to be thoughtful about how it works, because if it doesn't work, we're going to lose eventually. James has been pushing for this program for years. Long before his petition, he did it on a stage bigger than any you'll find at the state fair. See, James is not just a rancher. He's also a water lawyer, and he used to be Colorado's top water policy official. Several years ago, he was in charge of working with Colorado's neighbors to figure out how the states could use less water. And he pushed for this idea of paying farmers back then. When he left that job, he thought the states were on track to create a program. If they had, there could be extra water stored in Lake Powell right now because water savings on farms means more water for the whole system. Instead, James is trying another way. He's talking to farmers one at a time to get the next signature on his petition. If there's a way to demonstrate interest, let's do that. And my hope is that by accumulating enough of those people put it, basically putting their hand in the air and saying, I'm interested in this, if, if the price is good enough. we got to start somewhere. But doing something that could change the economics of farming in the Southwest is creating tension among farmers themselves. About 50 miles west of James's ranch is a wide expanse of cornfields. This is the Grand Valley of Colorado, where the Rocky Mountains meet the desert. Joe Bernal is the farmer of these fields. He's actually tried James's idea. A few years back, Joe participated in a pilot where farmers and ranchers were paid to use less water. When he drives up to meet me, Joe is wearing a flannel shirt under a tan vest with thick-rimmed hipster glasses and a cap that says Bernal Farms. I am a lifelong resident of the Grand Valley. I was born and raised here. 
My father was born and raised here. We use the farmland we own and the farmland we rent and Colorado's water and sunshine to produce food. I am a uh, lifetime agriculture producer. We produce uh, wheat for milling. We produce feed corn. We produce alfalfa and we produce grass and also cattle, beef cattle. I'd love to hear your family's story of how you ended up here being farmers and ranchers. My great-grandparents were born in uh, Conejos, Colorado. They came here to work in the sugar beet industry and short time after that bought a farm and began raising sugar beets themselves. My brother works with us and several other family members, in-laws, cousins, nephews. And I think part of it's because of our Latino heritage. That heritage um, dictates a lot of closeness. I think that's one of the one of the more admirable or the more enjoyable things about our lifestyle. Joe says it was never a question for him whether or not he would keep the family business going. He says farming is the one thing he wants to do. This gorgeous fall day is a harvesting day. There's a massive combine sitting nearby in a cornfield. Joe and I climb up a ladder to get in the combine to start harvesting corn. Okay, Mike, you ready to go? Yeah. Watch your step. Come this Stick way. that way, great. Joe helps me get all my stuff up into the passenger seat. Okay, what can you hand me? You can grab that. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. And then maybe the water bottle. Once me and all my reporting gear make it inside, Joe empties the corn he already harvested into the back of a truck. Okay, that was about um, 12,000 pounds of corn, 300 bushel of corn. And what did you say it was gonna be used for? This, uh, a uh, particular buyer is using it for beef production. Okay, this is going to be a really dumb question if you've never heard this song, but have you heard the viral It's Corn song? It's this little kid talking about corn and how much he loves corn. No, I haven't. What do you like about <laughs> corn? It's corn! It has the juice! It has been stuck in my head since I've been watching hundreds of thousands of pounds of corn. <laughs> Being dumped into a truck. Once the combine is empty, Joe starts moving slowly through the field to collect another load. This is how his family has used Colorado River water for decades. But just a few years ago, Joe agreed to get paid to leave some of his fields bare. That's called fallowing. Instead, that water stayed in the river. But he's cautious of what fallowing on a much larger scale could do to his community or any other agricultural community in the Southwest. We're proud of our community and, and we want to protect our way of life. And we want to have the opportunity to continue our way of life. And we don't want this community and its resources to be mined, to be taken from, offered a, a high price and, and be offered to be to sell them. We look at, at our water 
as our biggest resource that adds the value or the beauty or the or the desire to live here in the Grand Valley. So to look at the uh, idea of, of of just taking money that could possibly hurt this community, we're very very wary of, and we want to look at the opportunity and and look at it and and look at the consequences for ourselves, for our neighbors, and the businesses here. Joe says James's idea can work, and that if the price is right, farmers will give up some of their water. But he wants farmers to keep growing as much food as they can. And also, I think it's important that, that people understand what we do with this water. We make food. I like pizza. I like cheese on my pizza. Uh, our alfalfa, our grass goes, our, our corn goes to make goes to the areas to make to make milk, to make cheese, to make foods that we all enjoy. I, I can't emphasize enough that we use water to make food. Joe wants there to be careful rules on who can participate and how much water they can lease to try to lessen the impacts of farmland going dry and drying up economies in those communities. Because there are lots of other local businesses that rely on farming Joe also emphasizes that the program needs to be voluntary, so each farmer can decide what makes sense for them. On the plus side, Joe says taking money to fallow fields would allow him to invest in his whole operation. Land improvement, irrigation system improvement, also maybe infrastructure, those, those opportunities could also come about if you were farming a little less ground. So Joe sees an upside for himself and the river to the idea of paying farmers to use less water. But he also worries about the impacts to some farming and ranching communities if water itself becomes the commodity instead of crops and livestock. And he has real personal reasons to be worried about that. Joe doesn't own this farmland that he's harvesting. He leases it to grow food. The owner of these fields is actually a private Wall Street investment firm. The company is called Water Asset Management, and they've bought millions of dollars worth of land in Western Colorado. How do I feel the landlord is a hedge fund? Well, we in, in the United States have the opportunity to buy land and do what we want with it. So far, so good, is what I say. The thing that I will recognize about water asset management is they have kept large blocks of ag land in ag production. Most of the places, or all the places that they purchase here in the Grand Valley are being farmed by local farmers. The company, Water Asset Management, is now one of the largest landowners in the Grand Valley. In an interview in 2020, the company's co-founder and president called water a trillion-dollar market opportunity. Their goal is to make farms more efficient so they can profit off leasing water they no longer need. On their website, 
the company says clean water is the resource defining this century, much like plentiful oil defined the last. And here's where Joe Bernal and James Eklund are connected in a surprising way. Because James Eklund, the water lawyer and rancher, who wants Colorado River farmers to show the states and the federal government that they want options to lease their water, he represents water asset management, the same Wall Street firm that owns the farm that Joe leases. And the company is poised to profit off programs where they can lease their water in times of drought. Programs like the one James is pushing for. James, the rancher and water lawyer, has tried to convince Joe to sign the petition. But Joe doesn't like that James represents a company that sees profits in farm water. I asked Joe about James's petition. I have heard about it and I'm in not support of it. I don't look at this as an opportunity to get rich. We look at this as an opportunity to uh, be participants in the solution of the crisis uh, on the Colorado River. And if they provide some economic bonus for the landowners and the water rights holders, I think that's good. But I would be cautious of creating a windfall for our community that could disrupt the continuity of our ag system. You really don't want to scrap something and then in two years turn around and go look for it and say, well, where did I scrap that? Well, that's, that's, our, ag, that's our ag economy, that's our ag producers, that's our, our owner and renter relationships. Those are the things we want to maintain. Back on James Eklund's family's ranch, we're sitting in wooden chairs on the porch as the sun is starting to set. I asked James about these concerns that Joe Bernal and others have about private companies like Water Asset Management buying up farmland to profit off water in times of drought. James says the company's goal is to keep agriculture in production. And if they can make farming more efficient, and profit off the water the land doesn't need, James sees that as an investment in the future of farming in the West and a safeguard for the rest of us who rely on the Colorado River. I guess my biggest beef with this whole criticism of me or water asset management is, well, do you discourage, do you want to discourage investment in Colorado agriculture as a sector? I don't think you would find any business leader, chamber of commerce, economic development official or participant criticizing or trying to dissuade money from anywhere in America, Wall Street, private equity, venture capital, you name it, angel investors, family offices, institutional investors like pension funds. And I hear, well, water's different. It's a you know, farmland and water, agriculture is different. Well, tell me how, and we can have that conversation. But, you know, I'm sitting with you here on my ranch, and this is a business. 
and we have to operate it as such. If somebody wants to invest in this place, you better believe I'm going to have that conversation. So, where do things stand with paying farmers and ranchers to use less water? There's been a lot of movement recently. The federal government plans to put millions and possibly billions of dollars into the idea, recognizing that it has to be one of the solutions for the Colorado River. Farmers and ranchers use around 80% of the Colorado River. So most of the water that's needed to get us out of this crisis has to come from agriculture. But the money they've made available so far is temporary. It's a one-off. And most of it is currently going to Arizona, California, and the tribes there. As for the upstream states in the Rocky Mountains, they've agreed to a version of a program to pay ranchers for their water. That means James has set aside his petition effort. But he's still not satisfied. He doesn't think Colorado, New Mexico, Utah, and Wyoming are going far enough. He says farmers would have to be paid more for the idea to really work. It also doesn't ensure the farmer's water flows down to the critically low reservoirs. The states recently decided they wouldn't go that far for now. If they move forward, it could mean a lot more water to go around, but less water for farming. There are ways to do both though, save water and keep growing food in a profitable way. We visit an indigenous farmer who's trying to do just that, to grow the same amount of food while using less Colorado River water. I think that the tribe's role in this moment is really that of almost a caretaker in the sense that, you know, this river has sustained us for so long and for generations and it's, it's at the core of us. I think it's our role also to make sure that, that we, we do everything that we can to protect it. That's next time on Parched. CPR climate and environment reporter Michael Elizabeth Sackis in Parched our podcast about the Colorado River that shaped the West and the 40 million of us who rely on it for water. Find this and all of the episodes wherever you get your podcast and online at CPR.org. Summer is wildflower season, and that inspired a question to Colorado Wonders. My name is Ava. How many wildflowers are there in Colorado? The short answer is a lot. And for insight, we asked Grace Johnson, a horticulturalist and wildflower enthusiast at Denver Botanic Gardens, Chatfield Farms. She spoke with CPR's Mike Lamp. Is there any way to even ballpark how many different types of wildflowers there are in the state? There is. So in order to determine how many species of wildflowers there are in Colorado, there's still plenty that we haven't identified yet. There's some that may be sandwiched in with other species that are actually their own separate species. However, there is a book called The Flora of Colorado that identifies all different species within Colorado, different plant species. And so that would be a good resource to really explore and try to get the actual number of 
plant species out there. So it's still undetermined how many wildflower species there are in Colorado. Yes, as many of us know, um, there are many rugged parts of Colorado, so not every corner of Colorado has been explored, and there is potential that there are some undiscovered species of wildflowers or just different variations of wildflowers that have yet to be documented. Wow. And uh, addressing our uh, listeners' question, is there any way at all to estimate how many individual wildflowers, you know, how many blossoms that you think there are in Colorado on any given day? I don't really think I have an answer to that question. I apologize. It's like a zillion or something. It must be. Yeah. Yes, a very large number. Well, how is this year's wildflower season uh, shaping up compared to other years? Well, on the front range here, we've had consistent moisture as well as cool temperatures, which is going to prolong the blooms and actually make things more lush for the wildflowers here on the front range. In addition, montane and alpine regions have substantial snowpack And so things are going to be blooming a little bit later than usual up in the alpine montane regions, and it should be a fantastic bloom this year. What is the montane region that you refer to? That would be areas like Crested Butte. Alpine is when you get above tree line. So anything above 12,000 feet where conditions are a lot harsher, there's a lot of wind, there are no trees to speak of. So plants are a lot shorter, a lot smaller. So the montane is a little lower than that. You still get some shrubs, some trees, and really big, lush, tall wildflowers. Usually alpine plants are blooming July through August. Maybe they'll push out a little further, like through the end of August, but it's very hard to predict, just like predicting the weather, honestly. Now, we caught up again uh, with our listener who uh, kind of started this conversation, Ava. She says her favorite color is black and that she also likes purple. And so could you recommend a wildflower for her that could be either of those colors? Ooh, black is tough. You don't see a lot of black wildflowers, at least that I am familiar with, but there are a lot of purple and dark purple. So lupines can be dark purple, light purple. There's also tall larkspur, which is usually a deep purple color. Elephant's head is another one that comes to mind for me, uh, seen more in pretty high altitudes. The lupine, you come across a lupine, how do you know that you're looking at one? Lupines have sort of a silvery undertone on their foliage. They have um, a spur-like leaf, and the flowers are going to be on long stems with individual purple flowers all the way down the stems. Tall larkspur. Tall larkspur is a deep purple flower. It's named larkspur because the flowers actually look like the spur on a cowboy boot. It's usually pretty tall. It's going to be a lot taller than any lupines that you see out there. And it's very striking, very upright in appearance. Elephant's head is a very iconic plant. I love seeing it out on trails. From the side, it truly does look like an elephant's head with the trunk protruding upwards and outwards. Easy to identify. Yes, I think that's one of the easiest ones to identify simply from the name. People have their own favorite spots to see the flowers. Is there a general rule about where those good spots are, like uh, a south-facing slope or a certain elevation? One thing about wildflowers and native plants is that they are very versatile. So in all different areas of the state, you can have a chance to see wildflowers everywhere from the grasslands of eastern Colorado to 
right here in the foothills in the Front Range. There's also Pawnee Buttes grassland, which is uh, in northeastern Colorado that's apparently at peak bloom, having a record year this year for flower power. Uh, Green Mountain, I was just at a few days ago, and it's having a fantastic wildflower season too. So definitely lots of options on the Front Range, but I do think I'm a sucker for the big show that Crested Butte puts on every single year. Grace Johnson of the Denver Botanic Gardens speaking with CPR's Mike Lamp. The Crested Butte Wildflower Festival starts Friday and runs through July 16th. Another pretty and sweet-smelling event, the Denver Botanic Gardens Lavender Festival is July 15th and 16th. Send us your questions about life in our state at cpr.org slash Colorado Wonders. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. The largest source of support for Colorado Public Radio comes from members across our state. I'm from Denver. Aurora. Glenwood Springs. Grand Junction. Boulder. Ranch. With your donation, you connect your city to nonprofit journalism, to inspiring stories, and you connect your community to a wide range of music that fills our daily life. Month after month, donors continue to step up. Thank you for your support. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Armor, long swords, and shields. That's just some of the equipment that the Colorado Wardens use for their sport. Full contact medieval armored combat. It's based on tournaments that took place in the Middle Ages. KRCC's Shauna Lewis visited one of their training sessions near Colorado Springs earlier this spring. The sound of sword strikes echoes through the towering pine trees in Black Forest, just north of Colorado Springs. This is not choreographed reenactment or costume performance. It's the real thing, though the weapons are not sharp. Just got beat into the ground and threw some people around. I just, I loved it. I I couldn't wipe a smile off my face, no matter what happened to me. That's Colorado Warden Jeff Lexa talking about the first time he fought in armor. We're doing this for sport, as they did back then. That's the historical root of this, to replicate combat, but not to actually kill each other. Lexa says his armor, called a kit, is based on a style from the early 16th century and weighs close to 100 pounds. He uses it when he competes in team melees. That's when as many as 300 armored combatants take the field to battle it out. There are also one-on-one duels, a specialty for national champion Shoshana Shellens. Her black and steel gray kit weighs about 45 pounds, which she says allows for better mobility and visibility. Everything fits into the bag, a bit like Tetris. I'm removing my greaves, which are the shin protection, and my quisses, which are the thigh and knee protection. These are made of steel while my brigandine chest armor is actually made with titanium. My helmet is a German clap visor. There's also some modern gel padding that goes under some of that armor. This keeps the armor from abusing me when the armor is hit against me. The kit has to meet authenticity standards for competition set by governing bodies. Most of them buy their gear from professional armorers. It can cost around $2,000, and that's just a starting point. But some, like Ian Webb, 
prefer to make part or all of their kits themselves. Because I'm a big guy, I recognize that I'm going to be a very large target, so I wanted a kit that's going to protect me in any case whatsoever. At six foot seven, 300 pounds, Webb often fights using a pole axe, which is a long shafted staff topped with an axe head. He and others practice using a stationary target called a pell, in this case, a stack of tires. Webb and fellow warden Travis Tuning describe what it's like inside a suit of armor during a melee. If it's all really muffled, you're hearing dunk, dunk, dunk. You hear your own heartbeat. Feel your own breath. You're just so focused on what you're doing, the pains that you feel when somebody strikes you, the exhaustion in your lungs. You're breathing in the smell of the dirt, the sweat, and like you have all the metal and leather in your nose. All you hear is these other dudes clanking around you. You get this huge rush of excitement and happiness and like adrenaline. Tuning calls it armored mixed martial arts. I do the nerdiest version of MMA that you could possibly imagine and it's awesome. It is a sport that combines nerd and jock. Some people come to it because they grew up fighting imaginary dragons with broomstick swords and trash can lids for shields. Or because they're interested in history or it keeps them fit and strong. Members of the Colorado Wardens say what keeps them going is the camaraderie and support they share with each other. Shauna Lewis, KRCC News. Thanks for joining us today and to our own Colorado Matters team of warriors. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Tom Hess. Michael Hughes. Chris Ketchum. Pedro Lumbraño. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. And I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.